0: Listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. We base these eight doctrinal essentials on those things that have always been essential to the Christian faith. And we've said each week that we've been together that it's, it's not whether or not some doctrines are more important than the others. They're all important, but some are essential in the fact that to have a different understanding or have a, have a differing opinion about these that we call essential would be to set yourself apart from the Orthodox Christian faith. And what we want to do is, is we want to highlight those that are of the most essential nature. There are some things that we would call non-essential, It doesn't mean that these are doctrines that are not important. They're all all important, but the non-essential doctrines are those things in which you have a a greater opportunity to disagree or to understand differently how the scripture teaches on some things. So in the non-essentials, these are those things that we can probably argue about over Thanksgiving dinner, Uh, hopefully that we don't argue and then leave in a huff with one another, these are the things that we can say, well, I see it this way. I see it another way. Those would be in the category of non-essential. In the essential doctrines, however, we need to be agreed. And at Oasis Church, we, we have what is called covenant partners. We don't do members because back in the 90s, I think American Express had a, had a commercial and it talked about those who had an American Express card were members and membership had its privileges, so when you're a member, you have an expectation of something. And that's not what we think that being a, a member of a church is. It's not about what can you do for me. It's about what does God want me to do with you in the progress of his mission. So we have what's called covenant partners. Well, membership has its privileges, but partnership has its responsibilities. And so that's why we call those folks that are a part of us covenant partners. And to be a covenant partner, you don't have to agree with everything in our doctrinal statement. We get it that there are things that you might see differently in the non-essentials. However, if you're going to be a covenant partner at Oasis Church, you have to be in agreement without reservation on our eight doctrinal essentials. And that's why we're going through these in order to help you understand who we are as a church. But as a believer, we saw from Jude, only one chapter in Jude, Jude verses three through two, 2, 3, and 4, that God has called us to be as, uh, as, as, as disciples of Christ, as representatives of Jesus on this earth. We're to contend for the faith. That means we've got to stand up for the faith. That means we've got to take that hill, drive God's standard of doctrine down, and then we've got to hold that hill no matter what. Those are those essential doctrines that we believe are essential to the Christian faith, and that's why we're going through these so that you might know who we are as a church, so that you might partner with us around those beliefs and so that you might successfully contend for the faith that was handed down through the prophets, through Christ and the apostles, even down to us today in 2018. That's where we're at today. So in order to get through these, let's go through the ones that we've already seen. Our essential number one in just a second is gonna probably pop up. There we go, essential number one. Let's say these together. Number one, the Bible alone is authoritative. It is inspired and inerrant in the original documents. The Bible alone. No other books, no other works, no other, no other holy sacred writings have the authority that God's Word has. And God's Word has absolute authority. What God's Word says is true, and what God's Word instructs is from Him, and we are called to obey. So that's our first essential. Number two essential is let's say these together God is Trinity. One God eternally existing in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe that God's word teaches that there is one God and only one God. However, the scripture clearly identifies that that one God is made up of three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's how we're going to understand who God is is. So now we move to essential number three, and that is Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man. So we spent last week defending that God is one existing in three distinct persons, father, son, and Holy Spirit. And now we're going to begin talking about the humanity of the second person of the Godhead who is Jesus Christ. See, this is what happened when the early church said, okay, we're agreed, and following the the apostles' creed, when the early church was wrestling with the fact of, who is God and how are we to understand him? They needed to defend to the people that God was one, one God, three persons. So that put Jesus Christ distinctively as a person of the Godhead. They had to do this because as, as the early church was wrestling with who God is, a gentleman by the name of Arius came along and wanted to to try to understand what the scripture was teaching. Arius was not trying to teach error. He was just trying to understand scripture. And so Arius said, you know what? When, when, when the scripture talks about Jesus Christ being the firstborn of all creation, Maybe it is that we're to understand that Jesus was a created being. Yes, he was Messiah. Yes, he was the Savior. But maybe we're to understand that, that that God created him as the prime human. And so Arius begins to think out loud, if you will, and begins to teach. And the elders throughout the church, the bishops throughout the Christian world started getting wind of this teaching And they said, we've got to do something about it and arguments and And fightings began to take place within the church. And so Constantine, the emperor, set up a council where all the bishops could get together and figure this thing out. It happened in uh, Nicaea. We learned last week that that the bishops got together in Nicaea, in in a a city there in Turkey, in modern day Turkey. And they got together and they came up with with a statement that defined how God was to be understood based on what scripture said as a challenge to Arius which we would call him a heretic but he wasn't a guy who was in the church trying to stir it up he was just a guy trying to think it through unfortunately his thinking through was a departure from an orthodox understanding of who God was and so they created this creed in Nicaea called the you got it Nicaean creed that is still a valid like anchor to the Christian faith today, and they came up with this this statement that clearly defined God, Father, God, Son, God, Holy Spirit. But then they began to wrestle with what John chapter 1, verse number 14 says, and that says, and the Word, talking about Jesus, the Logos, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. How are we to understand Jesus, who clearly, fully God? We've got the statement, that is, that is our it's what God's word clearly teaches, that Jesus is God. We defended that last week. I will refer you back to last week. If you weren't here last week, we've got handouts available, it's online, and I would say go back and listen as we defend that the person of Jesus Christ, in fact, is God. But how are we to understand then that he became flesh? How how are we to understand this idea? And so that began the process of trying to express Jesus and his humanity, now, we believe that Scripture clearly teaches that Jesus Christ is fully, completely, and perfectly man. Meaning that Jesus is, in fact, human, just like you and I. We believe that Scripture clearly says these things. And we'll, we'll defend it right here first. We believe that, that Scripture clearly says that Jesus is fully human physically. He is physically human. What does Matthew 4, 2 say? It says, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was what? Hungry. You go without food for a long enough time, you will hear the rumblings. I'll give it about 25, 30 more minutes and probably someone near you, you'll hear that grumble, rumble. It may already be happening now if you didn't put the oatmeal in there. You'll hear the grumble, rumble because physically our bodies need nutrients, it needs fuel. So did Jesus. And it's an evidence of his humanity physically. John chapter 4, verse number 6 said, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus wearied as he was from his journey, sat beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. You know the story that a young lady was gonna show up and she was gonna be filling her water jar. She was a Samaritan lady. But but the point is, in that, we see that Jesus had gone a long way. He was tired. He was tired from the journey. Why? Because he was fully human. He was fully man. We see in John chapter 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scripture, What? I thirst. You know, this scene is Jesus on the cross, bearing our sin, dying in our place and for our sin, a holy and, and, and sinless sacrifice for you and for me. But in that process, he felt pain just like you and I would. He felt disgrace just like you and I would. And and we see scripture say that he felt thirst just like you and I do. Jesus is clearly human. And the scripture shows us that he is human physically. But it also talks about his humanity in the psychological arena. He's psychologically human. Luke chapter number 2, verse number 52 says, And Jesus, talking about his childhood, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus matured psychologically just like you and I do. And now here's 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 something that I, I want to just throw out to you because a lot of us think things about Jesus that you're going to find out in just a minute might be a whole lot more heretical than you mean for them to be. But I wonder how many of us have, have, have ever thought about Jesus in the in the, 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 the swaddling clothes, in the, in the arms of his mother, cooing and crying. And we thought, you know what, at any moment, Jesus could have just looked up at her and said, hey, mama. You've ever thought that he could, and he was just kind of holding it back. He was just pretending. He was like, okay, you know, babies, they whimper and they whine. But but Jesus really had the ability to go, you know, hey, mom, I'm thankful that you're here. You might have thought that. But you know what? That would go against his humanity. Because scripture says that he, like you and like me, grew in wisdom. He matured in his understanding. He grew in his ability. He had to learn how to walk, just like you had to learn how to walk. So he's he's physically human. He's psychologically human. He he grew in wisdom and knowledge. Then Matthew 8:10. When Jesus heard this, He marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, no one in Israel have I found such faith. You remember he came across this uh, Roman centurion, not even a Jew who wanted Jesus to help heal his servant. And and the centurion said, Jesus, you don't even have to come to my house, man. All you got to do is say the word and I know my servant will be healed. And you know what this word says? It says Jesus was astonished. Now, You know what it's like when your kids bring you something. It's something they've made or something that they found, you know, and, and you know where they got it, you know where they made it, but they've got it hidden in their shirt, you know, and they come like, mom, I got something for you. Like, oh really? What you got? Uh, Well, it's, and they pull out, it's like, ta-da, and you know where they got it. You know, they were in children's church and they made it, but they show it to, and you go, oh my goodness. Oh, that is so sweet. Are you really astonished? No, you're putting on because you want them to feel like you're just overjoyed at this dirt clod that they've brought into your house with a little flower. You're just, oh, that's not astonishment. That's probably deception, but we won't even get into that. (laughs) What the scripture's teaching is that Jesus was genuinely astonished. The idea is that he wasn't walking up on the scene necessarily knowing, okay, when I get up there, this centurion's going to say some things and I'm going to be able to show that faith in this centurion is a lot larger than faith in it. No, Jesus was genuinely, when this man responded, Jesus, the Son of God, in flesh, incarnate, was genuinely astonished. He marveled. It's not like he knew that was going to happen. And that might rub against some of our thinking about Jesus. But just hold on, if you will. Because it's very important that we understand the humanity of Christ psychologically. Surprise, amazement. Matthew nine thirty six. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He saw how they were interacting and how they were responding to one another and to the truth of God's word that they had in their hands and how they were responding to him. And he had compassion on them because he could see that they were like wandering sheep that had no direction whatsoever. He had compassion because human human psychology And his learned behavior allowed him to express that emotion of compassion. He experienced distress just like you do at things that are coming at you. And you know they're not good. Jesus wasn't riding above those things going, yep, yep, I know, that's trouble. No, he genuinely was troubled. Troubled because he was human just like you and I Matthew 26:39 going a little farther he fell on his face and he prayed saying father if it is possible let this cup pass from me C- can I just go ahead and tell you something Matthew 23 verse or uh, 26 verse 39 should trouble you all your life that should cause you I don't know how to understand that when you come to this and you go wait a minute was Jesus crucified before the foundation of the world yeah did Jesus willingly come to die yeah did Jesus know that that he had to die in our place before we yep well then why is it here that he's saying if there's any other way If you find someone who answers that question for you definitively, they've probably fallen over into a heretical understanding of Jesus' humanity. And I'm just, I'm putting you back on the hook. I'm not letting you off the hook. I'm putting you back on the hook. That verse ought to trouble you. I don't get it. I don't understand it. But that right there, that idea right there, I believe, absolutely proves what our essential statement is. He is fully God and yet he's fully man. What is he saying? He's, He's willing to submit to the Father. I don't want this. And if that troubles you, good. It troubles me and I don't understand it. But Jesus, the Son of God was saying, Father, I don't want this. But not my will. Your will be done. What do we see him doing? Submitting himself. And you're probably going to think I'm a heretic. Submitting himself to something bigger than his human understanding. Here's what I'm telling you. The closer we get to believing that Jesus Christ was fully man the more we feel like a heretic because it feels like we're saying he's not fully God. November 18th, it's online. We defended that. He's fully God. He's also fully man. Psychologically, he submitted his will. He, he set aside what he would want for what God would want. And then Hebrews 5, 7 In the days of his flesh, the writer of Hebrews said, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears. You ever gone before God praying about something or for somebody or for yourself or just not knowing and just not, you just feel empty and you just break down before him with cries and tears that you don't understand? The scripture says Jesus gets that because he did the same thing. You know why? Because he's just as human as you are, just as human as I am. Tears and sorrow. He's human physically. He's human psychologically. We believe that the scripture says that he is human spiritually. Now that's going to rub us a little bit. But we're going to find out that probably how we think about Jesus spiritually is actually considered a heretical teaching from the 5th century. Here's what we see in the scripture. Your, Your handout says Luke 23, 46. That's not right. Matthew 4, 1. Matthew 4, 1 is what verse should be there. And it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit, after he was baptized, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil Jesus was human spiritually he was tempted just like you and I are tempted and just because this is the one instance that we see the record of the temptation of Jesus that doesn't mean that the devil left him alone for the rest of his ministry it doesn't mean that he said well I gave it three strikes and now I'm out so I'm gonna leave Jesus alone we have no reason to believe that he fled from him, but we've been told if you resist the devil, he'll flee from you. But you know as well as I do, by the time he gets to the end of the driveway, where's, who's knocking at the door again? He's right back. He says, well, let me try this again. Let me, well, let me put this one, just like a vacuum cleaner salesman. Well, you know, I know you don't want this one, but let, let me try it one more time. Jesus was tempted. He was offered those same temptations that you and I are offered to indulge our flesh rather than to follow the leading of the spirit. Hebrews chapter number 415 says we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness but we have one who was in who in every respect has been tempted as we are what's that say? Yet without sin. Jesus Christ is fully human with one exception he has no sin has no sin nature and and that's good for us because had he had a sin nature he would not have been an acceptable substitute but don't let the fact that he had no sin cause you to think that he was not human because he was human just like you and I. In every respect. Clearly, physically, psychologically, spiritually. Second Corinthians 5 2 and 1 Peter 2.22 also express his sinlessness and the absolute certainty of his sinlessness. I'll let you read that. So we see that Christ is fully and completely and perfectly God. We see that Christ is fully and completely and perfectly man. And so we come to this statement then that Jesus Christ is the full, complete, and perfect God-man. Jesus is the God-man. You say, "Why Does, does he have some special category? Yeah, because he's the only man that also is God. And here's what I need you to understand. If you have a glass... That is a hundred percent full of Sprite. A hundred percent full of Sprite. How much Coke you going to be able to get in that glass? None. There's nothing like Jesus. There's no one like the God man because he is fully God and fully man. He's the God man. This idea of him being the God-man is what is the foundation of our theological statements. 100% God, 100% man. Our biggest passage of scripture that helps us see this in action is found in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter two. But before we get to that, the statement. For Jesus, eternally existing, as the second person of the Godhead, Father, Son, Spirit. How, how long has he existed? Eternally. How, how much God is he? He's, he's all God. He, he's no more God than the Father. He's no less God than the Spirit. They're all the same as it applies to their essence, but they function uniquely. So they're uniquely their own person, but they all possess everything about what it is to be God, and yet there's only one God. Can you explain that? No, you can't. You can't. He's not an egg. He's not a pie. He's certainly not three-in-one shampoo. He's something different than anything else in his created order. Now, for God the Son to become human, how does that work? Becoming human involved condescension or what we'll call kenosis. And we're gonna get to that in just a second. It means self-emptying. For, for God the Son, eternally existing with the Father and the Spirit, to step into our world in the way that we needed him to step into our world, it involved self-emptying. It, it involved Jesus emptying of himself so that he might become fully human while still maintaining his status as fully God. Confused yet? Welcome to the club. Let's read Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11. It says, have this mind among yourself, which by the way, if you've been here for a little while, we we kind of anchored our series uh, that we called synced onto this passage right here when we were synced like Jesus. Anyway, we'll read again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Think this way, Paul is saying, who, though he was in the form of God, all right, did not count equality with God. Is Jesus equal with the Father and the Spirit? Yeah, of course. it. But God, the son did not consider equality with God as a thing to be grasped, meaning, oh, no, no, I got to, I got to have this. I can't, I can't this. I'm equal with God. I can't. So no, I'm not going to be able to do that because I've got to hold on to my status as equality. With God. God, the son didn't need to hold on to anything. Why? Cause he's God. So he didn't consider that as something that needed to be great. Well, then why is Paul saying it? Because you and I have this challenge of not submitting to the will of the Father because we're trying to hold on to too many other things. Oh, I can't do that. Why? Well, I'll have to sell that. Well, I might have- he might want me to move. He might not want me to go out with her if I follow him. You see what I'm saying? So we consider things, and he's saying you need to think like Jesus. Jesus was in the form of God and did not consider that as something that needed to be held on to in order to fulfill the will of the Father. Verse seven, but he emptied himself. This is John 1, 14. The word became flesh. He, he emptied himself. It's a Greek word uh, that we, it's, it's a form of that word. It's kenosis. It's what's theologically called the kenosis, and it's what Bible students just know. Oh, yeah, that's Jesus self-emptying himself. Well, well, how, professor, yes, Mr. Clark, professor, how did Jesus do that? And a a good professor would say, that's a good question. I got no idea. (laughs) He didn't tell, I wasn't there. And we didn't see it. It's not like that Jesus is unpacking, you know. It's not like he's setting, putting stuff in boxes. I'll I'll be back to get you. But I don't know what it's like. Bottom line is that God emptied himself of those things that would prohibit him from becoming man. And that's as far as I'm going to go with it, because even that might not be helpful. But it's what happens in my mind when I think about it. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Doesn't mean that that he pretended to be a servant. It didn't mean that it just looked like he was a man. No. That, that form of a servant, that likeness of man, he's like man. Like, let this fill your mind. God became man. How many of you have been born? Took you a little while. Took you a little while, okay. So now you pay attention. So you, I know some of you had spaced out a little bit. We've all been born. Guess what? Jesus did the same thing. It's the same trauma that you caused, he caused. The same experience you had in the womb, he had in the womb. How does that work? He emptied himself and he came in the form of a servant. And was made in the likeness of men. Being found, verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That'd be a great place for an amen. Anyway, he came down, he did what he was given to do. God raised him from the dead. He ascended up on high and God has given him a name that's above every name of ours. Every name we've got pales in comparison to the name. You know what that name is? King of kings, Lord of Lord. As it applies to his godness. No, he was always God as it applies to his humanity. He is the descendant of David who will set up an earthly throne and will reign on this earth over his brothers and sisters in humanity. It's awesome. How do we explain it? We don't. But if we're not careful will begin to try to understand it in a way that departs from orthodoxy. Let me give you a few. These aren't on your handout, but there is going to be a list of these that you can see, and you might want to jot some things off to the side. So, in the 400s, 5th century, 400s, some bishops, like Arius, Not trying to stir up any trouble, not trying to do anything wrong, began to try to think about what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. He was, you know, he became flesh and dwelt among. How are we to understand the humanity of God? And and we're going to see some departure from this orthodoxy by three fellas. Their names are Apollinarius. Nestorius and Eutyches. Anybody named Apollinarius? Probably not. He's a heretic. You know, you're not trying to name your kid Eutyches because he's a heretic. He just wasn't trying to be a heretic. But I'll tell you the ones that did not care about being heretics were the Docetists. These were Gnostic Christian. I know, this. now you're starting to go, oh my gosh, you've used so many words that I don't understand. Just hold on. We'll talk about this and I'll share this. Here's Here's... Gnostic Christians, these were guys from a Greek philosophical background. And they had Greek philosophy just all in them. But they heard about Jesus. And they heard about his resurrection. And they wanted to believe in Jesus. They just weren't willing to let go of their Greek philosophy and embrace Jesus. What they did was say, Oh, cool. We'll bring Jesus into our philosophy. And you have what is known as the first century and first, second, third century Gnosticism. This, this, this mishmash of Greek philosophy and Christianity. The, the Gnostics had this idea of what is called docetism. Docetism is that Jesus only appeared to be human. He wasn't really human. It's just when you looked at him, you thought he was human. He was God just pretending. Oh, that's so beautiful like we do with our child. Not real man, just pretending. You know what that is? Well, that's, that's messed up but it was going on in that day. In the world of Apollinarius and Nestorius and Eutyches. they had to deal with the Gnostics. They got it wrong. How are we to understand it? Apollinarius started thinking through this and said, you know what? I think that, that how we're to understand this is that God, Christ, God as the word put on a human body But that's all. His mind, his spirit, his soul, if you will, was divine. And the only thing he put on was flesh. So it's like God stepping into a costume and zipping it up. It is a human body, yes. But Apollinarius said, but but it would be improper to think about him having a human mind and a human will and a human spirit, well, that would just take away from his being God. So there was a teaching going around called Apollinarianism that says here's how we're to understand Jesus. Fully God. Fully man? Oh, no, 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 no. No, not fully man. Just a body costume. Well, then came along a gentleman by the name of Nestorius, Nestorius taught that, okay, okay, Apollinaris is wrong. That's not how you understand it. He was fully God, he was fully man. But here's how we're to understand it Nestorius said that Christ had a human and a divine nature, but they were distinct, they were separate. So basically, Nestorius was teaching that Jesus was always living kind of bipolar, if you will. I'm, I'm, I'm acting as God. I'm acting as man. Those of you who've seen the Lego movie, you know the 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 police. If you've got kids, the police officer, his head is like smiling one time, and he swivels it around. And it's mean, so he was messed up. So basically, what Nestorius was saying is Jesus was conflicted. Sometimes he acted like a human. And, and when he needed to do human things, we needed to sleep and eat and be tired, he was acting in his humanity, but when he needed to walk on water, when he needed to do other things, he was acting in his divinity. So you go, oh, wait a minute, that's kind of how I think about Jesus. Well, just be aware, that's a fifth century heresy, that Jesus is kind of a split personality. No, no, that's, that's not true. Then along came a fellow by the name of Eutyches, and Eutychianism teaches that Jesus was born with a human nature, all right, so he stepped out of heaven, he was born in humanity, but somewhere around the baptism, he became the Christ. So like Eutyches was willing to say, I believe Jesus grew in wisdom and knowledge as a kid. But when it came time for him to take on the ministry, something happened. And and Jesus went from being purely human to, to being something new. Around that baptism, Jesus became Messiah. You go... Okay, how did that happen, you tickies? He didn't know. He's just trying to think through it. So so when he became Messiah, the word took on that flesh, and it became this mangled mishmash of humanity and divinity, and boom, now what we have is a superhuman, one who knows everything, can do everything, and just has to go through the motions of being human. And you go, really? That's kind of how I think about Jesus. I get it. It's just heresy. Because we're to understand Jesus as fully God, fully man, it's what's called the hypostatic union. It's on your handout. The hypostatic union. It's two natures in one person. And you go, well, hold on a minute, Kevin. How am I supposed to understand two natures in one person? I'm going to argue that with, I don't know. How are you supposed to understand one God, three persons? You go, well, I don't know. I say, I don't either. I just know that's what scripture's teaching. Two natures divine, human, one person. That's called the hypostatic union. Hypostatic, hypostasis is a Greek word that just means a singular existence. It means like there's a Stephen here at church, but there's not a Stephen over in Haines City as well. Like he exists in two different places. No, there's just one Stephen. That's it, just him. Get to know Stephen. He's a good guy. The one that I know is a good guy. The hypostatic union says, no, no, one Jesus, not two personalities, not some mishmash, two distinct natures, divine, human, one person. That's the hypostatic. union. know, how do you define nature? Well, a nature is a complex of attributes, not substances. Jesus is not two substances. He's He's not a God and a man. He has two natures. And a nature is a complex of attributes. Everything that is required to be human, Jesus has got it. Everything required to be God, Jesus has got it. Two natures, one one person. Out of this argument and, and problem of, well, the Gnostics and their docetism and Apollinarianism and Nestorianism, and quite frankly, Eutyches, we appreciate it, but we don't get Eutychianism. Well, how do we put this together? And a council of the elders, the bishops, got together, this time in a place called Chalcedon. Also in modern-day Turkey, the city would be known as Istanbul today. They got together in Chalcedon, and they began to talk about, well, It's not the Gnostic belief. It's Apollinarius is wrong. And Nestorius, we don't think he's got it. And Eutyches. who invited him? And so how are we to understand this idea of Jesus putting on flesh and dwelling among us? And they met. And I believe that clearly the Holy Spirit, in much a similar way in which he guided the scripture, not in the same way, but in a similar way in which he guided the progress of his word. I believe he guided the progress and the development of the church so that that doctrine handed down would not become some sort of error that we would have in 2018. Because guess what? We'd have picked one of those men to follow and it had probably been Arius to begin with. So God, the Holy Spirit, Using those that were in charge came together with a definition. This work we're going to read on the back of your handout, which I apologize, it's upside down. That's because I didn't print the test copy first. I just printed it and I printed it wrong. So I apologize. But I was being frugal because I didn't go back and print 50 more of them. But anyway, you've got the definition of Chalcedon. What is this definition? It is, it is making a statement, driving the standard for this faith that has been handed down. And it's saying, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. And no, not at all. This is the truth. This is how God's word teaches it. And we have what's called the definition of Now, Here's what it says. Let's just read it. I'll read it and you follow along. Following then the holy fathers. Who are the holy fathers? It goes all the way back to the apostles got the word from Jesus. It goes to those who, who established the Apostles Creed. We believe in, in the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It goes back to the, to the fathers that helped define how we're going to understand God. One God, three persons, then following this tradition of standing on that hill and saying, no, some of these things are worth dying for, following them the Holy Fathers, we unite in teaching all men to confess the one and only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. This selfsame one is perfect both in deity and in humanity. This selfsame one is also actually God and actually man. In case any of y'all have forgotten about Arius, he's actually God. But he's also actually man with a rational soul, meaning a human soul in mind, and a body. He is of the same reality as God as far as his deity is concerned and of the same reality as we ourselves as far as his humanness is concerned. Thus, like us in all respects, sin only accepted. Before time began, he was begotten of the Father in respect of his deity and now in these last days for us and on, our beh- on, on behalf of our salvation, this selfsame one was born of Mary the Virgin who is God bearer in respect of his humanness. And one of the creeds calls Mary the mother of God and you go, oh, heresy, no. She absolutely is the mother of God, the son, in the same way that Judy Clark is the mother of me. Just different. We also teach that he apprehended this one and only Christ, son, Lord, only begotten in two natures. And we do this without confusing the two natures. You tickies? I don't know about this blended thing you were talking about that he became and then he blended it up. No, not confusing the two natures. Without transmuting one nature into the other, Apollinarius, you saying that the word came on Jesus and then all of a sudden his human nature was gone and the word took over. No, no, no. Now, one didn't take over the other. He was both fully God and fully man, not transmuting, uh, without, uh, transmuting one nature into the other and without dividing them into two te- separate categories. Nestorius, Jesus was not bipolar. He wasn't working with two sets of minds in his brain trying to figure out which one to listen to without contrasting them according to area or function. The distinctiveness of each nature is not nullified by the union. The distinctiveness of each nature, divine, human, is not nullified by the union. He does not become less God because he is fully man. He does not become less man or more man because he is fully God. They are united without confusing each other. Da, 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 da. Instead the properties of each nature are conserved and both natures confer or concur with one person and one reality hypostasis hypostatic union They are not divided or cut into persons but are together the one, the only, and only begotten Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus have the prophets of old testified; thus the Lord Jesus Christ taught uh, Himself, taught us, and thus the symbol of the fathers, Nicene Creed, has handed down to us. How are we to understand Jesus, fully God, fully man? Two natures, one person in unity, not confused as it was handed down by the prophets, by the Lord, and by those who have gone before us setting that stake. Gnostics, heresy. Apollinarius, that's heresy. You, you got to turn away from that. Nestorius, you got to turn away from it. Eutychies, you got to turn away from it. Oasis Church, <laughs> Wherever you found yourself kind of following the thinkings of these guys, you got to go away. It, you say, well, what, what do you want me to do? Be confused? Yep. Yep. That's where, hey, that's where I'm comfortable. Us just being flat confused, but accurate as it applies to how we communicate about Jesus. If you felt like you were drinking out of a fire hydrant, imagine how I felt at the seminary. But we're here to talk about it. We're here to explore it. This is just an introduction to what we believe. So what was the point then today? Well, to help you be ready to defend the faith. Help you think correctly about Jesus. But I believe there's some practical application for disciples. First, before we get to the disciples, let me just tell you this. The most practical application for any human hearing these words are this. Jesus became human because you have a need that is connected to your humanity that you can't fix. Only an acceptable substitute can fix your problem, which is sin. And only God is acceptable. Only God is sufficiently holy. So that he became man, gave himself in your place and for your sin is the most practical application. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, then you are a human that is condemned already. But you don't have to be because God has made a way of forgiveness and salvation. It is in the death and resurrection of Jesus in your place and for your sin. And if by grace you will receive that truth, then you too can be a child of God given to all those who believe on his name. But if you know Jesus as your Savior... How we understand Jesus as fully God, fully man, the God-man practically applies to us. First, the God-man truly walked in our shoes. That means he understands our weakness. He gets it. You think you're praying to a God who doesn't understand because you're God and I'm human. Jesus goes, that's not true. I get it. I literally walked in your shoes. I understand. your. He understands your temptation. He understands the draw and the pull of this world because he experienced those things just without sin. It's practical, our understanding, because the God-man truly submitted to the Father's will, he shows us how to trust God what did he show us he shows us that sometimes the glorious ending we want to arrive at has to go through suffering and what more glorious ending do we want to arrive at more than well done good and faithful servant you see we'll say that's no that's what i want but what glorious endings are we pursuing on a daily basis Jesus has shown us how to trust God through the most difficult en route to glory. It shows us that the God man truly relied on the power of the Holy Spirit. I personally think that when Jesus needed to know what the Pharisees were thinking, that God the Holy Spirit illuminated his mind. That's just where I'm at, that's what I'm thinking you say, well, you know, Apollinaris was thinking too. I know, but that's fully man. And he showed us what it looked like to rely on the leading and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. He shows us how to wait and rely on God, not to get ahead of God, wait on him and not to try to do what God didn't want. He waited and he relied and he shows us how we can do that as human beings. The God man faithfully ministered in the face of total opposition. He shows us how to persevere. Jesus as as the God man showed us what it looks like to go through hard times because those things will not stop what God wants to do in your life. The difficulties, cannot affect his will and so we can persevere through no matter what why because what god has set in motion no man can stop and jesus has shown us how to do it carrying that big wooden instrument of death all the way up to the point of his execution and then lastly it's practical because the god man voluntarily took on humanity for our sake he shows us how to reach down. That the God-man emptied himself so that he might put on flesh, step into your world and mine. For his benefit, none. But for yours, he's shown us what it looks like to reach down to those in need. And he's given us all kinds of folks around us that are down there that need a hand. And it's not just the hand of finances or the hand of of encouragement, it's the hand of truth, saturated with love, reaching down to bring them up with the truth that we've been given. So it's important how we know Jesus. It's important so we can communicate, we can think correctly, we don't be considered heretic, and so that we can learn the lessons from Jesus, what it looks like to become man for our sake. So, Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man. Well, how are we to understand that? Well, take that handout and understand it. Let at the end of the day go, you know what (laughs) i don't get it but i just believe it that's where we're at aren't you glad jesus came for us aren't you glad he's a god man who uh, died in our place and for our sin i am let's stand together father we thank you for the day we thank you for your love we thank you for your word we thank you for jesus who put on flesh so that he might die in our place and for our sin we lift him up we glorify his name God, we look forward to his return when he's going to set up that throne and he's going to rule and every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess. God, we are just so thankful that we can be your children with the opportunity to do that before he comes. And we want to do it more and more. God, we thank you for your love, and we look forward to how you're going to use the truth to impact our life this week as we learn to reach down, trust and rely on you, persevere. Father, I pray for these that have lost loved ones this week. I just ask that your Holy Spirit would just engulf them with comfort, with the promise that we have in Scripture, that we don't grieve as those who are outside of the faith. We have a hope that our brothers and sisters who know Jesus as Savior will be with us in that great number when we're exalting his name together in eternity. But in the here and now, I pray that you'll give comfort and strength, wisdom. Father, you know the needs that we came in here with, financial, emotional, wisdom needs, questions that we just don't have answers to. God, I pray that you'll give us the the courage to trust you, to wait on you when necessary. And God, that we will uh, seek those opportunities to give you glory in every aspect of our life. We love you thank you. First in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen.